This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Dr Juanita Fernando, Chair of the Australian Privacy Foundation's Health Privacy Committee, joined me to discuss the Victorian Government's concerning plans to share every Victorian's patient data in a centralised health database with no way for individuals to opt out. This database will be utilised by public and denominational hospitals, outpatient clinics, residential care services, mental health, community health and ambulance services with scope to increase the number of services involved in the future. The bill is called the Health Legislation Amendment Information Sharing Bill 2021. Then, philosopher and ethicist Peter Singer spoke with me. Peter joined me for a wide-ranging conversation ahead of his appearance this week in Melbourne for An Evening with Peter Singer. We discuss utilitarianism as a philosophy, Peter's conception of effective altruism, the moral questions raised by the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as why we should care about the suffering of animals. Then, finally, New Zealand comedian and actor Chris Parker joined me to talk about his stand-up comedy show, Gentleman, which is showing at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival between the 31st of March and the 24th of April. Chris is also well known online for his very funny Instagram and TikTok videos. You can follow him on Instagram at chrisparker11. And I'm very pleased to now have Dr. Juanita Fernando on the phone with me. She is chair of the Australian Privacy Foundation's Health Privacy Committee, which she's chaired since 2014. And she's also co-vice chair of the Australian Privacy Foundation itself. Uh, Juanita is going to be speaking with me about a very, very important topic. This is a bill. It's called the Health Legislation Amendment Information Sharing Bill of 2021, a very charismatic title, as you can tell. And in particular, we're going to be talking about the Victorian government's concerning plans to share every Victorian's patient data in a centralised health database with no way for individuals to opt out. And this database is going to be used by public and private hospitals, outpatient clinics, residential care services, mental health, community health and ambulance services. And there is scope in the bill for it to be expanded to other services as well as time moves on and as the the database is developed further. So I'm going to be chatting with Juanita now about all of these issues, particularly obviously the privacy issues around this and also um, the potential for data breaches and the like. So I welcome Juanita onto the program. Hi there, Juanita, and how are you doing today? Hi, Amy. I'm doing very, very well. Um, Really well. Just a tiny, weeny correction in terms of your introduction. Mm -hmm. The um, Victorian Health Information Sharing Bill has not been extended to the private sector as of yet. Well, it is listed as going to be, though, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. But but it is not being shared as of yet. So that's that was all I really wanted to say. Thank you for uh, that. Now, no let's get to the context of the bill. Now, this in particular um, might take people by surprise because we do have something called a My Health Record, which the federal government brought in, and there was a lot of debate and controversy around that particular uh, initiative. And, of course, it was... 
uh, eventually the subject of consultation, it was amended and there was an opt-out process provided. And I think that uh, the kind of first thought that many people might have is, well, don't we already have a mode of sharing our health data through the My Health Record? And why is a state-based system required? What is the impetus and what is our current uh, health record system in Victoria? So I wonder if you could take us through the current context and why this bill has been brought forward in the first place. Okay. It's really difficult to get to the bottom of it, but the bill is part of the Digital Health Roadmap for Victoria. Um, the Victorian government tried in the early 2000s uh, to introduce a similar scheme. Uh, they spent several hundred million dollars on it, but that came to a sad ending. Then uh, there were the various iterations of My Health Record, which we have now, which purported to uh, do the same thing as the state-based system. However, I think it's around 10% of Australians decided to actively opt out of the My Health Record, so it's not a complete record. Um, and there were a lot of contingencies in terms of updating it, i.e. your doctor or your clinician, as well as you, the patient, needed to be registered and so on and so forth. So it's actually not really very widely used uh, and it doesn't seem to be maintained on a regular basis either. So the government decided, the Victorian government decided that, uh, that they wanted to store and use for, I suppose, planning purposes, uh, a 100% record of every single Victorian that they were able to uh, bring together, put together. So they decided to create their own database um, this database, um, it is uh, really duplicating the purposes of my health record, but it's not the only one in Victoria. There are several databases in being health databases being used in Victoria. But the idea of this was to overcome the notion of silos of information, that is, the right information for the right patient uh, at the right time in the right place. Um, but that's actually not what's going to happen here. Um, and as I suppose a form of acknowledgement, um, Services Victoria or the Department of uh, Health in Victoria will actually also be linked into the My Health Record. So in fact, they'll be maintaining both databases. They will be able to connect the My Health Record to the Victorian Health Information Sharing Bill in order to fill whatever gaps have been deemed appropriate. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, it does. And I know that in the bill, the secretary for the Department of Health is listed as the kind of central person or person responsible for this particular project and the data that's being collected. Uh, and that all of these organisations that are listed in uh, the legislation, if it passes, will be compelled to participate. So it's a it's not um, an optional thing for them either. It's something that everyone will be choosing to engage in. Um, I wonder when we're thinking about the bill um, and how it's been, I guess, rushed as how it's been described by the Liberal Party and other parliamentarians, there was a vote on it last October in the lower house. Uh, and this was interesting because it, it was actually pushed through in about six days, which apparently is a, a short time frame for something of this significance. And that one MP, a Liberal MP had, sorry, a Nationals MP had uh, 
tried to send this particular legislation or bill to the Legal and Social Issues Standing Committee because they believed its complexity and potential for uh, cost overruns, for um, issues arising like what would happen to border communities in Adelaide and New South Wales who um, use both sides, both states' health services, these kinds of issues needed to be discussed and also the people who are clearly most affected, as in all Victorians, um, that they also should have should be consulted and included in this. And that's one way you can do it is is through having that review and these inquiries through the committee process. Uh, that was then opposed and leave wasn't granted for that to occur. So the bill now sits in the upper house, the Legislative Council. Um, I wonder whether you have any commentary around that because obviously there are a number of voices in the sphere of privacy and health uh, in the law, the Law Institute of Victoria, for example, doctors as well, all saying that this has been pushed through too quickly. Um, what are some of the reasons why you think uh, and that others have raised um, that this is a more complex bill that needs more consideration? What are some of the reasons that we should be taking a step back and considering this in a greater um, detail and depth? Okay, well, you're really right about the fact that it's been rushed through. It's actually had its second reading now. It's actually just going into law. It had its second reading on the 25th of March. So it's now gone through both the upper and the lower house, and it did receive bipartisan support. And I was terribly sad that Rhonda Britnell's recommendation uh, uh, in terms of looking at legal and social issues uh, did not succeed, because I just think this is a terribly, terribly sad day for Victorians. Uh, you only really have to look at the history of the Victorian government, in fact, of governments Australia-wide, to understand that uh, they are not really uh, effective data... or not as effective data custodians as they seem to imagine or as, as, as they seem to promulgate. So we've had, for instance, in Victoria, a 16% increase between 2019 and 2020 of health data breaches. Um, and this is going up all the time. And if you want to have a look at them, there's actually a, a website called By Weber Insurance, which lists all of the data breaches Australia-wide uh, since 2018. And it's really shocking that the Victorian government features very strongly there. You only have to think about the breach of Barwon Health and Eastern Health. I think Eastern Health was in um, 2019. Um, so both Barwon Health and Eastern Health were subject to ransomware. Um, which meant that uh, they were not able to access their own uh, health records uh, because criminals had actually hijacked them. Um, there are also incidents such as the youth worker that works for the Department of Health and Human Services whose internet access was not cut off when he was um, when his position ended, which meant that he was then able to go through Department of Health and Human Services databases to groom young people and having access, of course, to this honeypot, this centralised information system of everybody's private health information system. Um, so the current health record system really does not have a great track record. And the first vote, never mind the first vote, I think there have been six votes in total, and they have all been rushed. And the final vote uh, in the upper house uh, was actually uh, was a bipartisan sent to that, but there was no uh, no opposition to it. 
So nobody has gone in the way, has tried to step in the path of this and slow it down other than uh, David Limwick uh, initially before it went through the upper house. And uh, as I say, Roman Britnell, I think they are the only two elected politicians that have actually stood up to Victorians. I don't believe anybody else has. Um, this, and this is despite all the concerns that I'm talking about, the concerns that are expressed on websites, uh, sorry, uh, data breach websites, and um, and all of the detail which has not been looked into. Because if you think about it, uh, databases control facts. Oh, sorry, uh, it contains facts. It contains factual information, but it doesn't contain context. So data is different to um, context or information or understanding about the data, and that can lead to a whole range of unintended consequences. Um, the uh, uh, Australian Doctors' Federation and the Australian Privacy Foundation are really concerned that as a result of this legislation that um, patients will be reluctant to uh, be fully frank with clinicians in situations where this is really required for a proper diagnosis and for a proper treatment and management of the condition. Um, it, it is really, really concerning. Um, some of the other detail that hasn't been uh, worked through are things like uh, who's going to have access to this information, what government departments, because although there is an independent uh, department reporting line, everything comes under the same minister and everything comes under the auspices of the Secretary of the Department of Health, who can make amendments as the department requires, and keep in mind that the Secretary does report directly to the Minister, um, simply by promulgating this in a Government Gazette. So there's no independent oversight at all. Uh, the other concern that we have is that there is, uh, in, contained in the bill, is, a, um, uh, is the uh, absolute blocking of an individual's capacity to consent to opt out or to control access to the information or even to audit it. So what happens is that if there is some kind of error contained in the fact stored in the database, the patient who is um, the subject of that uh, data cannot put that data into context, let alone correct it. And there have been a growing number of... Uh, unintended consequences reported by coroners as a consequence of too much information being provided to clinicians at the point of care. So this really, really concerns me. The, my, I mean, I suppose I'm getting into a, a related subject, but my other concern is the old chestnut of, uh, yes, but you'd be grateful for all of that information in a central location uh, if you require emergency care. But in fact, that's not the case. If you require emergency care, there are sentinel events that clinicians need to know about. They need to know about your chronic illnesses. They need to know about any medication you may be on, any allergies and so on and so forth. But they do not need to know that you're having an affair or that you um, have, uh, have had suicidal tendencies, suicidal thoughts, or that you've been depressed. And all of this information all comes together under the one record. There is no summary record for emergency care. And none of the details have been worked through in terms of the Victorian government. So when you looked at their privacy impact assessment, when they were putting together this um, centralised database, the privacy impact only occurred 
during the planning stage, there is so much detail yet to be worked through. Uh, and I'm just terribly concerned. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of those points are extremely concerning to me, and I know they would be concerning if people were <laughs> knew about it uh, to many others, and I'm so glad we're talking about it right now. One of the uh, points you mentioned there is about having too much information at the point of care and also not having that context and story around the information. It's just a massive database um, with no kind of care taken to categorise, I guess, what is critical, essential information that's required, you know, in that emergency department type setting. Um, one thing I think that is very concerning for people with chronic illnesses or disabilities, especially those that um, are invisible disabilities, is that many people, and particularly women, are often um, gaslit by different doctors, they can have a misdiagnosis, they can be told that they're just being anxious when they come in for chest pain, uh, they can be told that they're being, you know, just overly emotional when they come in with agonising endometriosis pain, which we've heard of by so many times from women, and this is all Absolutely. kept in a record. So as you say, we've got these kind of records that are supposedly facts, but even the facts may not actually be true. And so then I think, I guess it's a concern that I'm hearing from patients and patient groups is that um, that this will further embed disadvantage, discrimination and bias that they're already receiving from different doctors because now every doctor and every treating clinician will be able to see this information. Yes, you're actually precisely correct. Uh, the bill actually brings together... Um, information from a whole um, range of health services, including mental health and ambulance services, it is completely, uh, it is 100% complete in terms of every public health record of every Victorian. And what concerns me the most is it's retrospective. This is not something that's going to commence for the, uh, the database will start operation in 2023. Um, but it will actually be harvesting information retrospectively, and I don't know how far back it will go, um, but it will go back quite a bit. And it is, I mean, the functionality of it is is, is really concerning to me. The uh, health privacy principles in Victoria uh, have been amended to, uh, to um, help establish the database, and... This is just, for, for the Australian Privacy Foundation, this is just a taste of the kind of function creep that has been going on for decades now in terms of the legislation which is designed to protect people. I mean, uh, the health privacy principles, in fact, all of the Australian-wide, that is state and territory, privacy principles, keep on... Uh, the goalposts keep on moving and moving and moving, and it's in order to enable a whole range of motivated reasoning by government departments and government officials. And when I say motivated reasoning, what I mean is that uh, officials or administrators have decided that this is the direction that they'd like to move in. And the only issues they look at is how they can go from A to B. They're not caring about the community. They're not caring about what we experience. They're only caring about how they're going to achieve a particular goal. Um, and, and that is really worrying. The, all of this data, we don't really know um, who the data is going to be shared with, but my bet is that it will be shared for planning purposes and there will also be 
Um, well, they've been quite, quite obvious about it. It'll be used for medical and health research as well. Um, now, that really concerns me too because in Australia, you have, you have no right to sue for breach of privacy. So unlike our, uh, our um, counterparts, a similar counterpart across the world, Australians have no statutory right to privacy. And what is more... Um, where privacy principles and so on and so forth do apply, government departments and agencies are exempt. Um, mm. so, so this is really, really concerning for me because there is the whole process or there's the, the whole argument put by clinicians about patient-centred care, but this is not patient-centred care. This is about budgets, it's about planning, it's about forward-thinking, it's not about patients. Um, and... Uh, once a medical practitioner has decided on a particular diagnosis, and this goes into the medical records, and every time the patient goes from Dr A to Dr B to specialist C, that record is there for everybody to see and everybody to share, and there are no guarantees that that patient not continue to be discriminated against as a result of the facts stored in that record. Uh, it is just... I don't, it is just mind-boggling to me, actually. Um, and the fact that patients cannot see their own health record, there are actual mm. penalties for patients to see their own record. So patients cannot correct, rectify or audit their own record, neither can they see who else um, has seen the record. And this data is being collected before the department has looked at controls in terms of access. Uh, in terms of operational readiness and so on and so forth. There is so much detail yet to be worked through, yet the legislation's passed. Yeah, no, it's um, it's completely mind-boggling, I agree. And the Victorian government does not have a great track record in delivering IT programs in the health sphere. I mean, you mentioned uh, or referenced Health Smart in the early thousands, um, which originated from the Brax government, you know, that had many, many millions of dollars in cost overruns and then it was eventually shelved and absolutely uh, criticised by the, you know, independent, I think it was the Auditor General, was it? Um, yeah. Yes, that, that was reviewing that and said it was appalling, essentially. I mean, given that not only does this raise privacy concerns, but it raises operational concerns, uh, cost concerns, there are so many kind of details that seem to have been overlooked and uh, in the in the kind of attempt to rush this through with no real development of it. I mean, what are some of the responses that you got and that your colleagues got when you raised this? And I know you wrote a letter to the Minister for Health, Martin Foley, and I'm sure others like the Law Institute would have and the um, Australian Doctors' Federation. Did you receive any response from the government about your concerns? Well, actually, it's really interesting that you asked that question. The only response we received is from the Department of Health. We received no response from the Minister. Um, and to be really frank, this is um, a publicly elected official. He is accountable to us that we received no response from the Minister. What we did receive from the Department of Health was uh, a whole list of uh, responses to questions, but those responses are not satisfactory. So for argument's sake, 
The department said that they did seek feedback on the proposed legislation uh, by engaging a range of stakeholders, but the stakeholders that they engaged are not specified in their uh, contribution or in their letter to us. Um, and they also talked about uh, convening forums with the Health Issues Centre. Now, the Health Issues Centre um, comprises uh, a whole lot of consumer and, and clinician membership. So they did engage with the Health Issues Centre, but the point is we don't know what form that engagement took. We don't know what questions we asked. We don't know who was there. And certainly no um, community... Uh, experts or privacy experts were involved in that stakeholding process. Um, what is more, the consultation, uh, wider consultation, took place using something called the Engage Victoria platform, which is an online platform, which again takes into no heed the whole digital divide issue that we're suffering from in Australia, where an enormous number, and I cannot recollect the, recollect the exact figure, but I think... I was terribly surprised because I think it was more than 40% have no access to digital information. They do not use the web for information. The digital divide means that they are actually uh, excluded from these processes. So I don't really call that a reasonable consultation process. And what is more, um, the government made no steps to uh, communicate these changes with the wider community using the media outlets that we already have. There's nothing on, um, on you know, ABC Radio, for argument's sakes, or in the newspapers d uh, announcing that this process is going through and asking for feedback. Everything was online. Mm. And it's just not good enough. Um, they also talked about uh, that their, uh, the position they've adopted around privacy aligns with legal and regulatory, the legal and regulatory landscape. But I would question that entire legal and regulatory landscape, which I did earlier, uh, because those protections that I talked about are just being crept back forward, uh, sorry, back further and further and further as function creep expands and expands. So the department sees that this is an appropriate balance between patient privacy and confidentiality while supporting continuity of care. Well, I'm sorry, I don't understand how one leads to the other. There's no logic in that to me. I don't think that's an appropriate balance. I think an appropriate balance is when you consult meaningfully with the people that are going to be affected by the database that you've introduced and by those facts, as I say, facts, not context. Mm. Uh, I was just going to say, I, I was, you know, surprised to hear, oh, I'm not surprised to hear that you didn't get a response because it seems like um, there clearly wasn't a, a desire for the level of public awareness um, that is required for this bill, uh, perhaps because they saw how my health record went, uh, because yeah. that, that was a sticking point and everyone was pushing in the end for an opt-out choice uh, that was eventually then implemented and many people did take it up um, and for good reason. So, I mean, that I think is one of the greatest sticking points and one that I'm surprised that the Liberal National Party, the opposition, did not push for. Neither, it appears, did the Greens. Um, in fact, Dr Tim Reid was 
really very glowing about this bill and uh, just what it was going to do for doctors and did not seem to provide any critique of it. Uh, I didn't hear anything from the Reason Party or Fiona Patton that I could see anywhere on, on Hansard. So I'm concerned as well that really there's been no real opposition, as you've referenced there, even the Liberals who said they had privacy concerns and wanted an opt-out clause, um, as well as having great reservations about this database's designs, even these people, it seems, just didn't think that it was a, a big enough issue for their constituents to to raise these concerns and even push for an amendment. Yeah, look, um, I agree with you completely. There seems to be this disregard for human agency by government and our elected politicians. Uh, this is something that we need to take into account because at the moment, as far as I can see, our elected politicians and our government departments uh, do not respect us. They do not respect our agency. They do not respect our capacity to consent. Mm. Um, and... That is terribly alarming to me. This morning, I uh, I think I mentioned to you briefly, we've got a federal election coming up, not a, st not a state election, but I'll be doing the same for the state election. Um, uh, and the Australian Privacy Foundation will be outlining a whole range of election platforms, and one of these revolves around the notion of consent. Um, because too often now, in health, consent is either implied... That is, you continue to use a service, therefore you must consent to whatever data collection process is going on, or there's no requirement for consent at all. Uh, and I think you can probably hear I'm a little bit speechless about it. Mm. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I, I would like to be... I mean, I think the, the other area that, that is uh, I'm finding terribly alarming um, is that these elected politicians and these government departments are not engaging with the community. So when we do express our concerns, when we do want to engage in conversation and discussion, um, the response is complete silence. I mean, the Australian Privacy Foundation started writing about this centralised information system in June. We started writing to the department in June last year, well before the first reading in October, and the reply was non-existent, nothing. Yeah, uh, yeah. And this really bothers me because, let's face it, this record is going to let every agent of the Victorian government have a look or share a complete record of the most sensitive and private information of every citizen. So that is... GP records, mental health details, community health records, admissions to hospital and so on and so forth. Uh, and if that is not an ostensible breach of the clinician-patient, um, I suppose, agreement about confidentiality, I, I really don't know what is. And when you speak to colleagues, and I speak to colleagues from the Australian Doctors' Federation, they are really frank about... Uh, their duty of care because they believe that patients will withhold information that is relevant to yeah. their health and wellbeing into the future. Um, and there is no information in terms of what's been passed by the Victorian government 
how this is going to be regulated, other than, as I say, uh, alluding to the fact that the Secretary will have oversight and changes can be made using a government gazette. Mm. Uh, there are... It undermines trust, doesn't it? It's, yeah, it's certainly undermining that essential relationship which is built on trust because you think that you're disclosing your private information to one person, not to the potential, uh, you know, 20, 30, who else knows who, uh, medical clinicians, researchers, um, you know, public servants who might be able to access this information down the track. And, and we know... <coughs> sorry, excuse me. And we know, sadly... That these, uh, that human error and also mischief, and mm. then there are criminal We know that this honeypotted information, this information which has, uh, it's, it, it, which has every uh, element, every detail required for someone to conduct an identity fraud. Um, we know they're just not very good at looking after this information, but who's going to bear responsibility for that? What compensation will a patient be afforded? Um, and what rights do they have when mistakes are made or abuses occur or criminals um, hijack the data? Mm. And how will they ever find out if their data has been breached, as some people may not find out? Well, they don't. And, in fact, the case I raised earlier, which involved the youth worker and the Department of Health and Human Services... Um, nobody uh, other than the senior executives um, and obviously the reporter later on, but nobody discovered. Uh, none of the agencies that he was working with had been informed uh, that he breached their databases and none of the children contacted had been informed either. Mm. Yeah, um, no, it's very concerning. So... And for us to keep up, the thing is, I don't want to sound like I'm down on tea. I'm not. I think it's fantastic. I think there are wonderful things we can do with it. Um, and there are wonderful ways we can harness technology to improve healthcare outcomes. That is like a late armour there. That is just so easy for me to see. We have that technical knowledge. What is concerning me is, I guess, the political milieu around it, that lack of trust. Uh, in yeah. us as a community, and and in order for us to go forward hand in hand and make use the best use of that technology that we can, citizens need to be able to trust. We need to be able to trust that our information will not be abused, that our information will be accurate and correct, that we have a right to audit the accuracy of that information, so that we don't suffer any kind of adverse health effect as a result of misinformation. Mm. Yeah. Juanita, if people want to voice their upset and disagreement with this uh, bill, I mean, obviously it is in its very final stages, but I don't think that should deter people from voicing their opinions if they do feel that this is something they're concerned about, like you and I are. You know, would you, you know, be encouraging them to write to your, write to their upper house MPs and also their lower house representatives and uh, anyone else, perhaps the Minister for Health, to say that, you know, this is not something that they were aware of, it's not something that they're happy about and that they believe that the legislation should be amended uh, to provide an opt-out process. Is there, um, I guess, you know, a greatest action that you think people can take to uh, to at least voice their concern and to make sure that, um, that politicians don't, you know, get away with this, I guess? Yeah, look, 
you are absolutely correct. The only way that we are going to uh, halt the rush and answer these unanswered questions is if people start getting involved by writing to their local members, by writing to the opposition, by writing to the minister, by writing to the Department of Health and Human Services, or sorry, the Department of Health, by writing to Services Victoria. This is the only way that we're going to make any change at all, because right now, right now, um, we're just waiting for this to be rolled into law. So we have to stop it. We have to stop the rush now. Yep. Um, well, the Shadow Minister for Health is Georgie Crozier, for anyone yeah. wondering. <laughs> and for those in the kind of northern suburbs, um, the upper house, uh, the inner northern suburbs, Fiona Patton will be your upper house member. Um, but you can look all of this up to find who is your representative if you're not familiar, especially with the upper house ones who I know are maybe not as um, well known to people as their lower house representatives. Uh, but I think that there's some great resources up there. And I've also put a link to the bill on our homepage, on my show page there, um, so that people can check it out. But also I'll put a link to the Australian Privacy uh, Foundation's information about it. And uh, there's also some articles in The Age for people wanting to uh, understand some of the issues in some plain language, like we've been uh, explaining here today. Um, thank you so much, Juanita, for taking the time to go through this in detail with us and to explain so well and so um, passionately the issues that are affecting literally every Victorian and uh, we do need to stop this. So I appreciate your time today. Thanks, Danny. Thanks very much. And thank you, listeners. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And I'm delighted to be joined by philosopher Peter Singer. He's joining me uh, over Skype to talk about a tour that he's going to be giving, but we're going to be talking about a range of philosophical topics that I'm sure will come out uh, on the evening that Peter Singer is going to be involved in in Melbourne on Sunday the 3rd of April at the MCEC or Jeff's Shed in Melbourne. And it's a really special evening because all net proceeds from the tour that Peter is going on across Australia will be donated to The Life You Can Save, which is all about supporting the efforts to alleviate global poverty. So it's definitely something you should think about attending, not just to have some intellectually stimulating thoughts and no doubt um, conversations potentially after with Peter, but also to be donating generously to a very good cause and also effectively, as we'll get to in this conversation. I should also let you know that Peter is the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University in the United States, and he also works mostly now in practical ethics and is best known for his book Animal Liberation, though a number of his other books include Ethics in the Real World, The Most Good You Can Do, and The Life You Can Save. And Peter, in 2021, was awarded the Berg Gruen Prize for Philosophy and Culture. I'm very, very delighted to welcome philosopher Peter Singer onto the program again. Hi there, Peter. It's lovely to chat with you. Hi, Amy. It's, it's lovely to be back on your program. 
I've really enjoyed our last conversation. I think it was way back in 2019 before we even heard about the coronavirus. So we were talking about some different topics then. And um, certainly we did look at issues like animal welfare and animal suffering and also veganism and vegetarianism. We will talk about some of those topics in this conversation, no doubt. But one of the things we also did, and I'd love to do again, but in a, a bit of a different way, is to talk about philosophy and the value of philosophy and then move into a discussion on utilitarianism to to provide us with a good foundation for this conversation. And I'm sure we'll end up referencing it again later down the track when we're talking about these practical ethical concerns. One of the things that does come up often, and I know that you've addressed in essays previously, is that People will often criticise the arts and the humanities and definitely philosophy in particular, questioning its value and worth in this highly economised capitalist society where we're all meant to be producing graduates who are job ready. There's been all these studies showing that philosophy, for example, does produce highly effective people, people who end up running companies and leading different organisations. But I, I did want to ask for your reflections in particular on this issue when we're asked to defend the value, unfortunately, of the humanities, given that you are still affiliated with Princeton and still working there part-time in philosophy. You know, what are your thoughts on the value of the humanities and also in particular philosophy? Thanks, Amy. It's a good question. I, I would like to focus on philosophy because that's what I know more about, mm. obviously. Um, and there are two different ways in which I think it's extremely valuable to that people should study some philosophy and, and not only study it in a historical sense, but actually participate in it and think about the questions that philosophers raise and develop their thoughts on that. Um, and the two ways are firstly, essentially what you might call training in, in critical thinking skills. Um, and that's something that you know, people do in high school to some extent. And I think that's is generally recognized as important. But you can do a lot more than you are likely to do in, in high school in that, and philosophy will help you with that. And I do think it's an excellent training, as you say, and corporate leaders, uh, politicians, you know, used to be said, I remember that uh, a very high proportion of British prime ministers had studied philosophy at Oxford. And, uh, you know, that obviously stood them in, in some good stead. I'm not saying that they all did well with it. Some of them might have gone in the wrong direction. But yeah, it, it helps you to be able to assess a, a whole range of issues, to think about what the issues are, and to get across those and to express them usually fairly clearly, because at least English language philosophy has a strong emphasis on clarity of thought, um, not just sounding deep and profound with a lot of woolly jargon that nobody quite knows what you mean. Yeah. So that's one aspect of it. Um, and the second is, in particular, I think, ethics or questions of values. Because I think everybody ought to be thinking about what, how do I want to live my life? You know, um, Socrates said, uh, an unexamined life is not worth living. Um, I'm not sure that I'm going to go that far, but definitely examining your life is a good thing to do and can get you out of a rut. So many people are just going on and doing what their parents expected or wanted them to do and don't think about it very much. Maybe don't end up very happy with it or don't end up making as big a contribution to the world as they could have. So uh, I think uh, if you think about ethics, it encourages you to think about what's really important, what's valuable, what's valuable to you, what's valuable to others. 
and you know ask these questions about how ought I to live mm. and and philosophy does change lives it doesn't just ask these questions in a kind of theoretical way that goes you know into your head and flies out again um I've had so many students who've come to me after my courses sometimes years later saying I took your course and you know, it changed the way I thought about things. You know, maybe they said they became a vegetarian or vegan. Maybe it said they chose a career where they could do more good in the world. Maybe they started giving to effective charities. I think there's no doubt that philosophy has a very significant impact on how people live. And it's pretty hard to say the same about, you know, a lot of other subjects that people take in universities. That is very true. I'd have to agree. I do count myself as fortunate to have been able to study some subjects in philosophy. And so I have thankfully had exposure to some of the ideas that you teach and talk about and write about, including utilitarianism. But before we jump into that, I did want to reference a really interesting piece that you co-wrote right at the end of 2020. So clearly a, a poignant moment for many people after many lockdowns in 2020. And you had been writing about having a moral plan for the forthcoming year in 2021. And you were looking at a study that was taken in America, a survey of adults that found that only 23% report that they often think about or research the ethical aspect of a choice in their life. And you were thinking about, you know, how many people in America are really thinking about their life in a moral way and how many times does a moral issue or concern arise for them and how much are they concerned by this? And obviously, you've interpreted the figures in an interesting way. You say that at least three quarters of Americans think that ethics is important, but they don't believe that it requires much thought or research. So I wonder, springing from what you were saying there about the value of philosophy and examining your life and also these moral and ethical issues, what is the reason to have a moral plan? I mean, is it surprising to you that so few people might be constantly thinking about issues in a moral or ethical way? Because I think I was surprised by the statistics, given that I feel that I, every day, have a, a question on principle or on morals and think about these issues. So it's interesting or surprising to me to think that people don't think about it every day. Yes. I mean, perhaps it's not surprising when people are really struggling and they're thinking, you know, how can I get through the day or... How can I provide for my family adequately? That that's a dominant focus. But you know, in the United States, there's certainly a significant proportion of the population that is in that situation, and that's unfortunate. Mm. But um, it's not more. It's not three quarters of the population. So uh, there are many more who would have the opportunity to think about it, but don't. Um, and yes, it was somewhat surprising to me that there were so few who did. I co-authored that piece with. Um, uh, a woman researcher called Agata Sagan. So we wrote it because we we wanted to encourage more people to stop and reflect. And we thought, you know, doing that at the end of a year, at the beginning of a new year, is a way people make resolutions. But we thought rather than just say, you know, adopt some resolution, think about what are you doing with your life? And are you taking account of things broader than just yourself and those who you're very close to? And thinking about, am I living in a way that is good for the world as a whole? And you know, you mentioned effective altruism that I've been involved with. Well, part of that is to say one of your aims, not the only thing that you think about or do, but one of your aims ought to be to make the world better generally, to, to help others. Uh, and if you do that, then you, you do have some kind of moral plan. And, and that's what we were trying to encourage people to do. 
Mm. And hopefully that is something that will come up more and more for people when we tackle some of these practical issues that no doubt do come up for them in their lives. But I did want to address utilitarianism because it was one of those ethical, philosophical theories that I really got into and found so interesting. And obviously it does influence effective altruism and have a relationship to it. So I guess I was really interested to learn that there was a Chinese philosopher actually who wasn't necessarily the founder of utilitarianism, but he certainly did influence utilitarianism, the man called Mozart. He was from the Warring States period. And as you've written in one of your short histories or short introduction books, you say that he appears to be the earliest person recorded as advocating something like utilitarianism. And then there were other early utilitarians like William Paley as well, who um, had a more religious flavor to things. So I was also wondering if you could take us through a little bit of um, history of utilitarianism and where this idea and philosophical theory came from. Yeah, well, I think it's it's interesting. The, the Mozart example is interesting because it suggests that it's, it's an idea that has arises independently in different cultures. I mean, I don't think there's a, any actual connection um, between Mozart uh, in that very ancient period and then the rise of what you might think of as modern utilitarianism, where you start to see 18th century scholars who are thinking along utilitarian lines, Cumberland, Hume, uh, Shaftesbury maybe, and then, of course, you get Jeremy Bentham, who really systematizes it at the end of the 18th century uh, and into the 19th century. And, and after that, it becomes a, at least a formal school of thought initially in Britain, but then spreading worldwide. So I see this as showing that there's a kind of an, an idea there that if you get people thinking in any culture, they will come up with this idea of saying, well, you know, let's try to reduce suffering and increase happiness and well-being. And isn't that the ultimate test and the ultimate value? So I think that that's something that is that is there and that people discover. And then it's a question of, do they stick with that? Do they think that that's the only value? Do they think that that's one among many different values that have to be balanced? Um, and how does that relate to the kinds of moral rules that society has about don't tell lies, you know, do this? And in fact, for Mozi, he was sort of arguing against the more Confucian view about, well, you have specific roles as a member of a family, you have obligations to your parents and to your family and then to your community and your state and so on. And, and Mozi, like utilitarians, was more of a kind of a universalist. He was more saying, you know, well, there would be times in which the greater good of many would override your obligations in that specific role to your parents or other members of your family. And so... I'm just interested, what would you perceive to be some of the competing philosophies in this same field and at the same time to utilitarianism? Well, any view that says there is an absolute rule that you must not break, no matter what the consequences, is a competing view. That's sometimes called a deontological view. That's based on on duties that you have, like the duty to your parents, let's say, that Mozart was critical of, or the idea that you must never tell a lie, which the German philosopher, also in the late 18th century, Immanuel Kant, uh, wrote a little essay saying it's never justified to lie. Even if somebody is trying to murder somebody and the intended victim is hiding in your house and the would-be murderer comes to your door and says, have you seen him? And, and the only way you can stop this guy finding him is to say, yes, I saw him going down the street that way. You can't do that. You can't tell a lie. 
So that's clearly a non-utilitarian view because a utilitarian would say, well, look, you know, here's an innocent person going to get killed um, and you know, you're speaking to this murderer. So obviously there's better consequences uh, if you tell a lie, but Kant says no. And, and we see that in other, you know, perhaps fewer people would hold that view today, but we, we see it in the idea that it's always wrong to take an innocent human life, which is, was used as an argument against uh, voluntary euthanasia, or you know, as we now have in Victoria and most of Australia and many other countries, um, voluntary assisted dying, as we call it. So that's also kind of an absolutist view that is, is not utilitarian. Mm. And so I'm really was also interested and I remember we discussed this last time was the idea that utilitarianism is one form of consequentialism and there are different types of utilitarianism it seems that there are different weightings or emphases and you did talk about the idea of not only increasing happiness or pleasure but also reducing suffering and that being on a bit of a scale um, it's much harder to increase happiness, but it's much easier to reduce the amount of suffering. I wonder, could you just tease out some of those issues in terms of how a utilitarian and in particular the way you perceive it to work best in the real world when we're thinking about either reducing suffering or increasing happiness? Yes, certainly. Well, in the real world, you, there are many things that you need to try to do. And that is, of course, assess the impact of your actions or if you're part of some larger body assess the impact of the actions of that body curiously coincidentally i'm 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 in sydney now to, to give one of these talks in 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 sydney and i'm having lunch in a couple of hours with some people from the new south wales uh, government department that has been uh, tasked with assessing the social impact of government policies um, and that's that's an, a really important thing to do but also quite a difficult thing to do because there's so many different effects you know there will be some people who will be greatly benefited by your policies there will be a lot of people who you know since they have to pay taxes that will be some something that uh, they'll be slightly worse off because their taxes will be a little higher because you implement some policy how do you balance that kind of question so you know I, I, they're, they're difficult and I don't have clear answers. I mean, you know, there's a theoretical question you could say to people, well, suppose that you were choosing between a situation in which you you got this benefit, but, you know, you had to live, let's say, consecutively the lives of all these people who have slightly less money because you got this benefit, um, or a world in which all of these people have a bit more money, but every you know you do also have to live the life of the person who doesn't get the benefit so so that's kind of theoretical answer to it but um how you actually decide that is is really difficult yes and that's where philosophy helps is as we've said thinking it through having a framework to think these kind of questions through but i did want to also bring in now effective altruism and what that means to you it's something that you are obviously well known for and associated with and something that you talk about and have written about in great depth. People might be familiar with the word altruist or altruism, someone who is doing something good, a good turn and not expecting anything in return. That's how I've often kind of interpreted it yep. intuitively is to think that I'm not going to get some material gain or benefit and that's not the reason why I would do it, not the reason why I would give assistance or aid. So, with that, what would effective altruism be? So effective altruism is, you know, I think you, you accurately describe altruism. You're, you're trying to, to help others without thought of material gain anyway. You, you may get feelings of satisfaction. I don't think, you know, from the fact that you know that you've benefited others, I don't think that detracts from it being altruism. 
um, but you're not doing it for a, a reward in material sense. But you know, many people do this, and they don't really think very much about is this the best thing that I could be doing. Um, and I'm not thinking here of a case where you know you fall, a child falls in a pond and is about to drown, and you know the only thing you could do is jump in and haul the child out. Obviously, I think everybody would would do that. But one way in which we're altruistic is that we give to charities. Um, and when people give to charities, very, very few of them actually do any research to say, what is the charity going to do with this? You know, maybe they have some broad idea of what the charity is going to do. Um, and is this charity really going to make the best use of the money that I have? Because money is, is fungible, right? So if, if I have 100 or 1,000 or $10,000 that I decided I can give to charity, then different charities will do different things with it. And surely we want to know which ones will do the most good with it. Just as if we were buying a, a new laptop or phone, we would want to say, where can I get the best value for money? But we don't do that about uh, giving to charity. Uh, and we don't do it that often about our career choice either, which goes back to this other question about having a moral plan for your career. So effective altruism says you should do a little bit of research, uh, and in fact, it often says w we will provide you with the information because there are organizer, there are websites where you can find about charities and about careers, and you ought to think about that and not choose just impulsively or intuitively, but choose on the basis of some thought about where you can do the most good. So that's why we're talking about being maximally effective, that if you're less effective, if you give to a charity, which may be a charity that does good, but you could have given to one that would do 10 times as much good with, with the money as the one you've given to, and that's that's perfectly feasible, it could be a larger multiple, then, you know, effectively you've wasted 90% of what you've given. Mm. So, so that's what effective altruism is concerned about, and it's trying to help people make those choices. Uh, and The Life You Can Save, which spun off the book that I wrote on that name, um, uh, is a charity that is trying to do that specifically in the area of alleviating extreme poverty. And that is a, a really good point in terms of alleviating extreme poverty, as you raise the fact that often the greatest gain um, is in those low-income countries where the same amount of money you're going to get a greater benefit than if you spent it in a developed country like Australia or on an issue that's a very complicated one. So, um, you know, there are examples of malaria and malaria nets. And another really great example right now is vaccinations, COVID-19 vaccinations, and the fact that in Africa, they're still so far behind uh, in terms of getting their population vaccinated. And obviously, the UN set up the COVAX facility to get that moving. But we have seen Western countries and rich countries not provide uh, the supplies that they had promised. And I thought that was a really interesting current ethical issue uh, that's very pressing for us right now because obviously more variants will crop up when there's more unvaccinated people in the population. So, I mean, when we're reflecting on some of those issues, particularly in the developing countries, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, vaccination, for example, right now, the COVID vaccine inequities that we're facing? And clearly that's a kind of issue that we as a society could be addressing and through an effective altruism lens it seems like a no-brainer to to be donating all of our surplus vaccines to continents like Africa and countries like Indonesia. Yeah I think it is a no-brainer and, and in fact it's not it's, as you said it's not even really necessarily altruism mm. because in the long run we'll be better off 
if there are fewer opportunities for new viruses to develop or new variants of the virus. So we should be doing that, and we're not doing it nearly enough. We're doing a little bit of it, but um, the discrepancy is still very strong. And uh, yeah, we're getting, you know, we're having third, third doses and uh, fourth doses are being talked about now. Um, and there are people who, many people who haven't had their first doses, not because they're anti-vaxxers, but because it isn't available in their country. So uh, it is it is really somewhat scandalous uh, that uh, the COVAX has not received the resources that it needs to distribute everywhere that it is needed. Uh, in a way, it's not surprising because, you know, we already knew that, that people are dying for want of bed nets in countries where malaria kills children. And yet we are, we are willing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars just to save a life um, here. So, yeah, that, that disparity is there and it's there with the vaccine as well as in other areas. In the, the description for your talk, it does say that you uh, will be tackling issues like mandatory vaccination. And I did read your column in Project Syndicate from last year when you were looking at uh, compulsory vaccination. And I wanted to draw out some of those ethical issues that you raise in there because they are very interesting and I think they apply even more broadly in this pandemic. And they're things that we are thinking about personally every day. So you did make a comparison between vaccination and seatbelts and it's something that we have certainly heard come up in conversation and it does make a lot of sense. But I wondered if you could draw out some of those philosophical thoughts that you had when you were considering whether vaccination should be compulsory and what the kind of impetus is and what philosophical theories or frameworks might help us to grapple with that issue and to come to a conclusion. And you've obviously come to your um, conclusion, but I just wonder if you could tell us how you got to that conclusion. Yeah, sure. And I think it's very pertinent now that we're sort of seeing these billboards as we drive around the city saying freedom, 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 but mm. they don't. we don't think about what freedom really involves and what the principles are under which individuals should have freedom. So the philosophical background for me um, comes from John Stuart Mill, who was one of the, the great 19th century utilitarians, follower of Jeremy Bentham. And uh, he suggested in his classic essay on liberty that the principle that should decide when states are justified in interfering with individual actions is, are they doing it to prevent harm to others? Um, and if they're doing it to prevent harm to others, it's justified. If they're doing it for the moral or physical good of the individual, then that should be left to the individual's choice. Now, I don't actually totally agree with that. And the seatbelt legislation is one that I've always supported, um, you know, Growing up in Victoria, which was the first jurisdiction in the world to make seatbelt wearing compulsory, and now that's accepted pretty much universally. Um, and that is paternalistic um, because you don't harm others by not wearing your seatbelt, except maybe rather indirectly that you're more likely to need hospital treatment and attention and so on if you're in an accident. But it's very indirect. you know. And I think nevertheless it's justified because people don't really think consciously and clearly enough about should I put on a seatbelt, the risk of being in an accident is very small, but on the other hand, it could be very terrible if I'm in an accident um, and not wearing a seatbelt and I, there's not much trouble in wearing a seatbelt. So that's why I just, to protect people against that kind of laziness of not putting a seatbelt on, I think it's okay to have a small fine for 
not wearing a seatbelt. But in the case of COVID vaccination, you know, that comes squarely under the preventing harm to others principle. So Mill would have said, yes, it is justified for the state to intervene, because if you don't get vaccinated, there's, there's actually two ways in which you could harm others. One is that you could be more likely to get the uh, virus and to spread it to others. And the second, which has become very clear in parts of the United States where there are large portions of the population unvaccinated, is that you end up filling the ICUs, the intensive care units in hospitals, um, because you're much sicker because you were not vaccinated. Even though there are people in ICUs who were vaccinated, it does happen. But statistically speaking, the chances that you not only will get the virus, but will be so ill that you need an in intensive care and a respirator are far, far greater if you are unvaccinated. And that means that, you know, you will be preventing other people from getting a bed in an ICU when they need it to save their life. Um, you know, maybe they're vaccinated people who still get COVID, but they might have some completely unrelated thing. In fact, one thing that's clearly happened here in Australia too is that optional surgery got postponed. And optional surgery, when you postpone it long enough, can be quite serious. Uh, and in, mm. in you know, parts of the United States, even essential service, uh, surgery really had to be postponed. And it's clearly documented that some people died because their surgery was postponed because there were not enough beds in the ICU to take them after surgery. And then the condition worsened to such a point that they could no longer be saved. So uh, I think that's a major way in which being unvaccinated is harming others. And that justifies saying, we we can require you to get vaccinated. Yeah. I wonder then when we're thinking about that theory um, and how you've applied Mill's thinking there, whether that also might apply when we think about mask wearing and in particular when I was thinking about vulnerable people, for example, the medically vulnerable who are currently having to isolate more than the general population now that mask wearing isn't required, are we impinging on their freedom to live a life outside and even one that's freer than they are right now because we're not wearing masks? Because obviously for them, if they get the COVID-19 disease, they're more likely to have a serious illness or potentially die than someone who doesn't have perhaps uh, pre-existing conditions. So I wondered, thinking through that issue, whether for people to say, oh, well, I just want to be free to wear a mask or not wear a mask and it's my choice, are we actually uh, impinging on other people's freedoms to live a life and one that's a safe life? I think we are, especially if we're indoors. I'm, I'm not convinced of the evidence that mask wearing is important uh, outdoors. Let's say, you know, you're passing somebody on the street. I'm not sure that you can get enough of the virus um, that way, although perhaps if you're sitting next to them at a football game, um, you might, that might be different. But certainly if you're inside, or let's say if you're on public transport, um, I think it's we should be wearing, continuing to wear masks on public transport, and uh, it's wrong not to do so, um, because that's something that people, you know, often don't really have a choice about using public transport. They may need to get to work, they may, as you say, be, be particularly vulnerable, and they may not be able to get to work any other way than through public transport. So um, I support the idea that we should continue to wear masks in those situations and uh, some other situations as well, because again, it's a bit like seatbelts. It's, it's pretty minor for us, really. Um, it's not a big deal to wear a mask uh, in those circumstances, and you do restrict the freedom of others if you're not doing so. 
Yeah, it makes me think that, you know, those people need to go to the supermarket, they need to go to the chemist uh, and maybe even to their workplace that might be an indoor Mm -hmm. office space, for example, and those are all essential type of things that they need to do to survive as human beings. So it's something that I wish we would talk about a little bit more given that we have such high levels of transmission right now, whether indoor mask wearing should have a, a moral component to it, whether we should be thinking it's not just about ourselves, but about others and looking at it through this philosophical lens, which seems to be so useful, but not deployed often enough. Yeah, I agree. And I hope that people will be wearing masks at the events that I'm speaking at uh, here in Sydney and Brisbane and and back in Melbourne too. Yeah, well, hopefully they do do that. Um, I'm sure they'll feel compelled to if you mention it and your thinking behind it because it is very convincing. I wanted to also come back to philanthropy when we were talking about effective altruism and not benefiting materially. Philanthropy is one of those areas, especially big philanthropy, where you see particularly well-off individuals donating. And you'll often see them donate to a particular cause that is aligned to their interests or their passions. And I guess that's not necessarily a bad thing, but A, is it effective, but also B, my question is, should wealthy you know, individuals who are donating their wealth, should they be benefiting materially? Should they be accepting a board role or having their name as part of the thing that they've donated to? And should there be that kind of material benefit that does seem to very, very often flow from philanthropic giving at that high level that we see in society? I think some of the things you mentioned really have a distorting effect on, on where the money goes. And, and I have to say, um, being a professor at Princeton, I see that all the time because Princeton is constantly building new buildings. Um, and the reason it's building new buildings is that people like to give large sums of money. Princeton has many wealthy alumni who give to the university, um, but they tend to give to buildings that will then bear their name. And so uh, we get lots of buildings, which is quite disruptive. Yes, they can be very nice buildings when they're built, but that's not necessarily, even if you want to give to Princeton, right, which I don't particularly recommend either because it's an extremely wealthy institution already. It has an endowment of 26 billion or something like that. I'm not sure exactly what the figure is now. Um, but, you know, even if you did want to give to Princeton, scholarships to help disadvantaged people come to Princeton and so on would, I think, or, or maybe to help research in particular fields that's likely to be beneficial to to the future of our planet, um, th- those would make sense more than more than buildings. So, I think effective altruists will say, you know, yes, if if people are going to give, and you know, you want to encourage them to give, but you'd also want to encourage them to give most effectively, and it's usually not the kinds of things that will have their name on it. Uh, so, that's that's a distorting effect. And then for those of us who are not wealthy billionaires or millionaires with yachts and those kind of things, I mean, one of the questions that some people have is what kind of impact can I have? And, you know, if if I'm on a, a low salary um, and not particularly well off, uh, how effective can I be with the donation that I'm making? And do I make a difference? You can certainly still make a difference, even on relatively low incomes. You have to realize that it- you can you can save lives for maybe three three or four thousand dollars, and you know you may not be able to afford to give that in a year, but if you give a little bit each each month, let's say it'll add up to that. Or you'll join with others, and together we'll 
tip it over the, the amounts needed. So you will make a difference in that way, but you'll also make a difference in, in setting an example that I think I'm trying to get through, you know, through the life you can save, I'm trying to spread the idea that everybody who's you know, not really at the very bottom of uh, the economic ladder in countries like Australia can afford to give something. I mean, if, if you're buying, um, if you're buying bottled water or, or bottled drinks when you could drink water, that's a luxury that um, you know a billion people in the world can't afford, um, and that's something that you're spending money on that you don't need to. So, we can help, and we can set an example. And and although people may not be giving very much per person, if if everybody is doing it, if a lot of the people are doing it, it actually adds up to, to quite large sums. So trying to encourage others doing this and then encourage others in your workplace to do it is, is really helpful. And of course, you can also be politically active. You can make it clear to your member of parliament that you're upset at the fact that Australia as a nation is giving currently 0.22% of gross national income to uh, foreign aid. So that's 22 cents in every hundred dollars that the nature earns, um, I mean it's 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 really pennies, mm. and it's and that's it's gone down over the years, and it's time that it went up again. Oh, absolutely, Peter. I wanted to talk about animals because this is something that you're very passionate about and clearly known for from the 1970s onwards, and it's something that has come up for me since we last spoke, and I've got some burning questions for you. So yeah. I wonder if you'd be able to oh. talk to them. But I did want to set the scene. Through utilitarianism, you say that all the leading utilitarians are clear that suffering is no less bad when it is the suffering of an animal than when it is the suffering of a human. And uh, you also have referenced in the past, I think it was Bentham in a footnote saying the question is not, can they reason nor can they talk, but can they suffer? So I was interested in that. And obviously, we know that vertebrates can feel pain and have, you know, suffering and, and experience pain in similar ways to humans. We also know that some invertebrates do too, like octopuses, and we now know even crustaceans do, uh, which is re- very concerning given how we do treat them when we cook them and boil them alive in some cases. Uh, and you do say that there's an estimated 65 billion vertebrate Uh, land animals that are killed for food every year. So with that and knowing that you wrote Animal Liberation in 1975, uh, which was clearly a kind of pivotal point in the idea of reconceiving the way that we think about animals, what are some of the concerns that you still have, the, the greatest concerns you still have in terms of the progress that hasn't been made for animals? Yeah, well, the greatest concerns that I have are about the increasing number of vertebrate animals um, that uh, are being factory farmed, that we're uh, imposing miserable lives on, uh, as well as as well as deaths. And it's increasing all the time. And that figure that you quoted of 65 million, I'm, I'm currently revising animal liberation. It, it needs an update. And that's my main research work at the moment. And the current figure from the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization is 77 billion now. And that's just land vertebrates. And I also think that I somewhat neglected in the earlier editions of Animal Liberation, uh, fish who clearly are also vertebrates and can also feel pain. And that makes the number much larger still. And even if we just focus on the fish that we're farming, you know, aquaculture is really a kind of factory farming where they're very crowded together. And I think there's good evidence that they're also stressed by that crowding and the confinement. So that would probably add um, another, maybe another 100 billion 
to the vertebrate animals that we're giving miserable lives to. Mm. Uh, And that's, you know, that increase is partly because of the prosperity of places like China, which is in itself a good thing, but means that they're raising and eating uh, a lot more animals. And I've seen videos of really just horrible factory farms, like an eight-story building that is just full of pigs, you know, indoors all the time, um, quite confined, hardly even seeing humans because more and more of it is done by artificial intelligence. It's something of a nightmare and it does trouble me a lot, um, I have to say, that, that this is going on. And even if we've slightly improved the treatment of animals in Western countries and the European Union has adopted laws to outlaw some of the worst forms of confinement of animals, in other parts of the world, the problem is worse than it was when I first wrote about it in 1975. It sounds dystopic, and I think the problem is that we don't see it and we're not witnessing it um, and experiencing it and potentially having the aha moments that we talked about in our last conversation because I mentioned that my one was um, on a grade three camp seeing an overfed pig who couldn't move that was about to be sent off to slaughter, and I could see the pain and suffering in its eyes and its face and its body language. Uh, it was very upsetting to me. Um, so I became a vegetarian at that point. And you told me about your aha moment at, at Oxford. I think you were talking to a vegetarian mm-hmm. in uh, the 1970s and you're having a, a conversation a- about the reasons why you would become a vegetarian. I mean, if we're not seeing these issues or talking about them, how do we create other people's aha moments? I mean, what do you think needs to happen to create enough of a groundswell to reverse this trend? I hope that we will see them, not directly, but uh, you know, there's a lot of video footage that people can see. And fairly recently, just maybe a month or so ago, uh, the New York Times ran, uh, it's now run sort of video opinions, and it ran something called, I think, The Hidden Costs of Chicken. Uh, and it was uh, it showed graphic video of factory farm chicken conditions and the fact in particular that chickens have been bred to grow so fast and to put on weight so fast that their immature legs can't really support them because the chickens that are sold in supermarkets are, are really babies they're about 45 days old um, and yet they're grossly you know grossly obese by standards of previously bred chickens so their legs start to buckle under them and um, often they then can't walk um, and they may just die of thirst or starvation because they can't walk to the food areas Mm. and you've got 20,000 birds in a shed and nobody is going to really individually look after chickens and say, oh, this one's sick, we need to put it out of its misery. So all of that's on video and the New York Times showed it to its readers and that was, I thought, you know, a change. Those videos have been around, but you've had to go to websites like People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals or here, Animals Australia, and you can see videos like that, but people don't do that. But if the New York Times is putting it out, maybe more people will see it, maybe more people will realise this. Uh, And of course, there's also an environmental concern about eating animals now that wasn't there when I became a vegetarian in the 1970s, but is much stronger now, and more people are changing for that reason. Uh, and f- responding to that, there's more plant-based foods out there. Um, so, you know, I think it's getting easier and easier to avoid eating meat um, and to avoid supporting the factory farm industry. And I'm hoping that it will be replaced and that that will be part of the solution, just uh, to find other ways of producing the kinds of foods that people want without all of this animal suffering and all of this greenhouse gas emissions. 
Yeah. I mean, even just personally, it's become a lot easier for me <laughs> to to eat as a vegetarian and not just be given a salad at a pub. Um, and uh, one thing that I really wanted to ask you about, because it's come up just in the last few weeks, we've got here in Victoria, the duck hunting season has come back around. And that's a, a, always a contentious issue, understandably, for many people here in Victoria. If we're thinking about ducks and birds in particular, we know that they're highly skilled, highly intelligent. They have amazing biologies in terms of how they behave and how they work. Uh, but one of the things that is really shocking, I guess, in duck hunting is is the fact that, I mean, it's really seen as a sport. And our premier here, Daniel Andrews, has been, I guess, criticised by some who've said uh, that his comparisons were inappropriate. And he did make a comparison by saying, some of us play golf, some people go shooting. That's a choice they are free to make. I mean, to me, they're not equivalents. And I wondered from a philosophical perspective, but also from this idea of animal suffering and thinking about, you know, duck shooting and duck hunting as an example, choosing to play golf and choosing to shoot a living being couldn't be the same, could they? Not at all. No, I mean, I think that's a really inept comparison. I mean, it's not as if the golf ball suffers when you hit it. If that were the case, then yes, that would be a bad thing to do. But we know that it doesn't. Um, and we know that the ducks do. Uh, and not only are they killed, and they're you know native water birds, but um, very often they're not killed uh, immediately, and they they may be left injured. And there's a lot of suffering going on. I, it's many years now. I used to go out with Laurie Levy, who was a great pioneer of the campaigns against duck shooting, and I went out uh, to the wetlands and saw the openings of duck season myself, and tried to um, help pe- help ducks that were injured or, or or show that there were protected species that were being shot that, shot that shouldn't have been shot. And, uh, yeah, it's really disappointing that that is still going on today, that that hasn't stopped. Yeah. Well, even on the first day, Wildlife Victoria discovered that a blue-winged shoveler, two of them, in fact, had already been killed in the first day, which is a threatened species that is not allowed to be shot, and that there were also many ducks that had just been left and hadn't been picked up. And so, as you say, may have had a very long and drawn-out death, unfortunately. So I guess I'm really surprised that this is something that we're still having to push back on. But what could be the vested interest in keeping duck shooting? I I just wonder whether you had any thoughts on that. I think it's the votes in the rural seats that that Labor would like to would like to win that may be important you know there are some rural seats that labor um holds or wins um ones particularly those with larger cities in them and uh labor feels that it would lose votes if it uh if it were to come out against you know to ban duck season which um i think is is a pity uh and and the, and the liberal national coalition wouldn't do it either of course Mm -hmm. i I think it's it's purely political i'm quite sure that if you took a a poll the vast majority of victorians would be opposed to it and if we had the kind of system that some of the u.s states like california have where citizens could gather signatures and then you could have a referendum and if it passed then that would be the law Um, i'm sure if that were the case here we would have done that long ago and there would be no duck season now Yeah. Peter, just finally, to close out this conversation on a kind of related note, so we have just been speaking about animals and also we've spoken about the pandemic. 
this pandemic has brought up inequities. It's also brought up the fact that, you know, climate change, the environment, poverty, mining, all of these things lead to spillovers where we have animals infecting other animals and then animals infecting humans. These kind of zoonotic diseases that appear and they've become more and more frequent as time has gone on, certainly in the last few decades. I wonder, you know, do you have thoughts on that given that all of those points are ethical points around, you know, dealing with climate change and how that affects human beings, dealing with animal to human transmission of viruses and how that causes immense suffering as we've seen in the last two and a bit years. What are the philosophical concerns for you around these issues and do you think there's a way that humanity could be tackling them better instead of just reacting which we seem to be doing every time we kind of say oh gosh I wish we'd had a pandemic surveillance system oh I'd wish we'd you know checked for those bats in the cave you know what should we be doing instead of this kind of reactive mode we, we should be thinking, doing more forward thinking. And again, that's something that effective altruists have often emphasised, that uh, we need to think about the, the, the future and to take steps. And, um, you know, on the pandemic in the United States, it was worse. There actually had been, when Trump came into office, there had been a committee to look at pandemic issues and, and report on, on risks of pandemics and preparedness for pandemics. And Trump wound it up. And so it wasn't there by the time the pandemic came around. But we, you know, we, we certainly should be doing all of these things. We, again, we don't give sufficient weight to the future. Some, some people in effective altruism want to think about very long-term future, but even, you know, even if we think about the relatively near-term future and the risks to us, we should be thinking about what can we do now that will prevent catastrophes occurring you know catastrophes whether they're things like pandemics that will disrupt the global economy and cause a lot of poverty or of course you know even worse things that might cause the extinction of our species and and of all life on the planet Peter, I'm so grateful to you for taking us through so many different subjects you're a wonder and uh, you're always really fascinating to speak with I hope that people can head along to your con your um, they're not concerts, are they? You're not going to give a performance. But, uh... No, I'm not going to sing. Fortunately for the audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you're going to be talking. It's called An Evening with Peter Singer. It's presented by Think Inc. And as you say, you're actually up in Sydney at the moment. You're going to be in Brisbane on Tuesday, the 29th of March, and then in Melbourne on Sunday, the 3rd of April at the Convention Centre, also known as Jeff's Shed. And you've also got a virtual online stream that people can engage with, which is fantastic uh, if anyone's isolating and can't attend in person. So yeah, I hope people can do that because as we said uh, at the top of this chat, all net proceeds from the tour are going to be donated to The Life You Can Save, uh, which is a really wonderful initiative. And people can also go to the website to understand how they can better donate and make change in an effective, altruistic way. So um, thank you so much, Peter Singer, for joining me today and all the best with your tour. Thanks very much for the opportunity to talk to your listeners, Amy, and I hope some of them do come along. That would be great. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
I'm absolutely excited and delighted to welcome onto the program comedian and actor Chris Parker, who is from New Zealand, and he is here in Melbourne to take part in the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. He has a show on called Gentle Man, two words, and it runs from the 31st of March till the 24th of April, and he is also well-known for many things, in fact. I probably won't get to mention it all up front because we'll talk about it in this conversation, but Chris has been involved in acting and improv and comedy writing for television. Uh, He's also appeared on reality television as well in New Zealand. And Chris also has a very fantastic TikTok and Instagram feed where he has created some hilarious videos and skits throughout the coronavirus pandemic and has absolutely kept me sane and really made me laugh. I've spent a lot of time forwarding these videos on to my friends and my sister in particular. So it is a real honour to have the one and only Chris Parker on the program. Hi there, Chris, and how are you going? I'm a little bit in shock after that glowing CV. <laughs> if only my parents were listening, they would have been so proud. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can listen back. From the lofty highs of, of theatre and acting to, to, I don't know, the trashy <laughs> bottoms of reality TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure you even won a reality television show, didn't you? I did. It's so weird because um, Australia has basically no context for what a show called Celebrity Treasure Island is. And it's a real alarm bell when you have to explain like explain that I am a celebrity that can be on a show called Celebrity Treasure Island in New <laughs> Zealand. But it's basically like Survivor, but everyone's playing um, sort of hens do party games. Um, <laughs> and somehow I just stuck around long enough to win it, which was, um, yeah, a bit, of a, a bit of a weird chapter in a, what was a very strange book last year. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was done in the pandemic, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It's supposed to be, because um, it's Treasure Island, you usually go on a, a remote island and, and compete against a whole bunch of other celebrities. But because of the pandemic, we were just in, um, honestly, about four hours away from my home in um, Auckland, so just up in Northland. But um, it was nice to be able to sort of spend some time on the beautiful New Zealand beaches. Well, I can't say I watched it because I don't think it was no. available in Australia. Uh, I mean, but- really, you'd had to be in New Zealand and sort of locked down in what was a quite a depressing <laughs> pandemic to watch it. Uh, but luckily that was going on. So quite a few New Zealanders did watch it in the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, you quite literally had a captive audience. Yeah. Uh, sort of held ransom in, in many ways. Yeah, indeed. Well, I know that we all felt quite captive here in Melbourne and uh, I mean we're quite famous for it now around the world of having many many lockdowns and being stuck indoors and as I mentioned in my introduction that's how I was introduced to your work was through Instagram and uh, gosh I think someone might have shared your really funny Instagram story about explaining gay marriage proposals as this elaborate (laughs) ritual which was hilarious (laughs) Clearly, I won't be able to get you to act it out again because it was just too good. But, I mean, what inspired that? Oh, so my partner of, like, seven years proposed to me at the beginning of um, February last year. And I just couldn't believe the amount of people that kept asking me, oh, so how does it work? 
Um, and I was like, what do you mean? How does it work? And I, well, you know, when it's two guys, like, do, do you have to buy him a ring or does, because he's bought you a ring and out, you know, it's like, because you're both yeah. men. And I was just like, it just seems so ridiculous to me because <laughs> it's like, it doesn't matter how it works. It's all ridiculous anyway. Like, why is everyone in these weird white dresses wearing veils? Like, it's all, it's all stupid. Mm. Um, and so I thought I'd just make a little video that sort of, um, pulled fun at that and, and, and mocked and sort of came up with the elaborate rules of when two men decide to get uh, engaged to each other, um, which is often my reflex. I think when I get a bit frustrated or confused by other people, I just sort of turn to my phone. I mean, really, I should just go to see a therapist and talk it out. But uh, <laughs> instead, I like to sort of show off and ask people to like videos that I've made. It's turned into be quite unhealthy, I reckon. It's an unhealth, maybe unhealthy, but we do benefit greatly <laughs> from it. So I'm grateful to you for expressing it through your phone. Oh, um, look, I don't have many skills is the thing. Like I don't, I'm, I'm not very like, handy around the house and I, I can't really do, um, you know, like practical things. But uh, one thing I am good at is just sort of making silly videos and making people laugh. So I guess it's, it's a great application of my very small and specific skill set. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the only serious question I might ask you today, which okay, I'll, I'll get out of the way now, is that I read in your bio that you came from a well-known improv troupe or group in <laughs> New Zealand. And so acting was presumably one of your first loves and something that you must have inspired you to to start doing improvisation. Um, and improv is not, not that easy. I mean, it is actually a skill to do improv. So I wanted to ask is that what has led to your comedy career? Like what came first, the acting or the comedy, or was there a kind of meld of both? Really good question. Um, I would say for me, it's always been a desire just to be in front of people and entertaining them. Like I'm just a huge show off. I think I probably take after my dad in that sense. Like I used to just be so enamored with the way my parents would like host a dinner party with a bunch of friends and, you know, like have all their boomer friends over, have a big cheese ball, on a table somewhere and have them all laughing. And like, I really sort of um, admire those qualities and I like having people over and entertaining them. And so it's kind of an extension of that and any outlet that I could have where I could perform and entertain people, I've sort of seeked. But I went to drama school in Wellington and did like very serious theater training. Um, but the, I just got a bit tired with acting because you have to wait for so long and, um, the way to get work is it's all in the hands of other people who decide whether you're right or wrong for the role. And also actors are just so ridiculous. Like they're just the worst people to hang out with. They're just, they're on, I mean, comedians aren't that great either. Like they're quite sort of depressing the, the, the lot of them, but actors are really out, you know, out of their minds. Like they're just the way that, I mean, you just have to look at the Oscars yesterday and see, you know, like the way that Will yeah. Smith reacted. Like they're just, they're pretty on edge. And so I always <laughs> found myself, wanting to hang out with comedians more because I enjoyed the, the banter more. And because of that, I just sort of ended up doing improv and, um, and then in comedy that way. But I actually got into improv at high school because I joined my school's theater sports team. And it was a bit of like a refuge in a way because there was nowhere else to sort of hang out during lunchtime. If your interests were playing the clarinet and, <laughs> um, <laughs> and drama and music and stuff. Um, it was a pretty sort of traditional all boys rugby school, but I did find some friends with the theater sports group and then we would perform at assembly in the school assemblies, um, which would be before the teachers came in because they used to do this weird promenade where the concert band would play and then all the 
teachers would walk in quite formally and then sit down on big wooden chairs and we would warm up the crowd weirdly <laughs> um, and do because you're gonna warm up that big you know audience of a thousand teenage boys who just do not want to be there and so we would do theater sports games and impersonate teachers and stuff and it would make us legends in the school for like mm. maybe <laughs> four minutes but that was enough for me uh and then we'd run back to the music room and hide for the rest of lunchtime so I think as well like I was like oh it's a way to kind of it was sort of like a survival tactic in a way of like, I really could, um, I don't know, just gave me a, a sense of, of purpose and stuff. Yeah. You're really playing to one of the toughest crowds there are, like right <laughs> off the bat. But it really feels like a great warm up if you want to be a comedian in New Zealand. Like the best training <laughs> ground you can have is performing to sort of hungry and tired teenage boys who just want to be like out on the field kicking a ball around. <laughs> Like, if you can win them yeah. over, you can kind of win anyone over. Yeah, that is so, so true. And I mean, I went to an all-girls school, so I can't quite, you know, relate, but I can imagine it right now. Um, <laughs> I did theatre as well. So, yeah, that was my survival mechanism in high school. So I can relate. And, yes, actors, there's probably more neuroses with actors, I think, than comedians potentially, just as a, a very gross generalisation yeah, it's the nature of the work, right, I guess, of what yeah. they like, have to inhabit or the work that they're kind of driven to, to do and tell. And I'm, like, always in awe of what an actor can do, and I love seeing movies and stuff, but from having a conversation with them, like, your, your eyes do roll sometimes. <laughs> um, whereas comedians are, um, you know, we're a trivial bunch, really. Like, I mean, in, in some ways we're quite irresponsible, but I don't know, sometimes when the world is as heavy as it is, you just want to hang out with the dumbest people you can find. And the world has been very heavy, as we've referenced, and as no doubt everyone listening is well aware of, given that we're still in a pandemic. And I did note on your um, media release, you had hoped that maybe the pandemic would be over by the time this show is on, but clearly it's not. <laughs> did I say that? <laughs> yeah, there's a little oh, asterisk God. at the end. Oh, yeah. I mean, you just got to hope, don't you? But that being said, I've got a great sense of hope and joy being in Melbourne. I mean, no one's wearing masks around here. I mean, I guess it's because you're all over it or something. I don't know, but it's yeah, good. Everyone's um, moved on, but it is still here and it's running rampage. So, oh, well, that's gonna that's gonna be great. That's only gonna lead to really great results, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and Chris, one of the things that I felt personally guilty for, and it really wasn't my own fault, but um, I uh, I'd reached out to this museum in New Zealand, needing some special archival document that they so kindly gave to me. Um, but oh. it was on the day that Auckland locked down because of Australia, essentially because of Sydney giving you Omicron. Oh. And I felt so bad because she literally ran out the door and photocopied this thing for me right when she had to leave to go to the, her lockdown, you know. It was so weird, though, being in New Zealand at that time because we, I mean, we just love to pat ourselves on our back for doing such a great job during this pandemic. But really, like, there is honestly 15 people in New Zealand and we're surrounded by water. So, I mean, <laughs> the odds were stacked in our favour in some ways. Yeah. But it was weird with that Omicron thing because it just felt inevitable. And we kept being told, like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And we had no cases. And so it sort of felt like you were in the dentist's waiting room and you could just hear someone in the room in front of you getting their mouth absolutely obliterated by a dentist. And you're like, oh, that sounds so painful. And I guess <laughs> I'm next. And that's sort of what it felt like listening through and hearing Australia go through the Omicron wave. And then um, before you knew it, we had one case and it was all over. Like, it really was for mm -hmm. us. And it just spread like wildfire as well. So, I mean, it's no one's fault, though it is fun to blame someone. But I really cannot stand that thing of like, 
when you get sick from someone and then they and, and you blame them for getting you sick. Like, it's just so trivial. The thing's blowing around everywhere, so it's no one's fault. And it's um, hyper-infectious, as we know. Uh, one of the really funny videos you did recently, which um, I mentioned to you off-air, was that video about the Omicron outbreak where you were talking, uh, you were personifying two countries, New Zealand and, I believe, I read into it, Australia. <laughs> Because it was a little bit too familiar, uh, and it did. I'm going to say Sydney because it, they were also just a bit braggy, you know, just kind of like painfully confident. So as a Melbourneian, I can say that. Uh, but I really enjoyed that video because I think it was once again providing light relief for something which, no doubt, was, um, I guess, daunting potentially for you guys. As you said, you were just waiting and waiting for the inevitable to happen. And then, you know, you're seeing thousands of cases tick up and you've got friends like Australia saying, oh, we know how to get through it. We can help you out. And, oh, darling, you know, you need to get a better mask. I mean, what are your thoughts about these issues and how do you come up with these video concepts? You know, what kind of inspires you and how does the inspiration strike? It just blows my mind really, like, in these huge kind of global events these like uh, things that are just so like massive you can't even comprehend how like sort of life-changing and history-defining these are that humans will still act like such like idiots inside of it like and our behavior is so um <laughs> um mundane and and like trivial and we just worry about like just where can we get a flat white throughout this pandemic? You know, you, and you think like when you're going to be in a pandemic, like, cause you, your only experience of them are the movies where everyone takes it so seriously because they're, they're heroes. And so, you know, they're the last one alive. And then suddenly you, you find yourself in a, a pandemic and you realize you're acting like an extra in the background, you know, um, <laughs> not taking it seriously at all. And so I think that's where it all, I think I can always pull the humor out of these pretty massive moments in life is like even though the pandemic is just like really like overwhelming the way that us as humans deal with it is like how we deal with any problem in our life <laughs> which is just yeah. so ridiculous but it's so true you know we're just like all we're really worried about is ourselves <laughs> and our relationships with other people um, and so I feel like it's those attitudes that I always just find so funny on a related video, I think a more recent one as well, was uh, you being told to go out and get bread uh, and you're like, treat it like this Mission Impossible type scenario. So it's very entertaining to see, you know, the hand sanitizer is like a gun and that, you know, coming back from your massive expedition and uh, and then you're told that, like, someone's a close contact of someone else and so, therefore, you have to isolate. And, it, oh, my God, it must have rung true for pretty much everyone who watched that video. It just felt that weekend, like no matter where you went, you it was just getting closer and closer to you. And I was really trying to avoid it because as well, like I just want to do my my shows and show off in front of in front of crowds. And if I get sick, like it, I obviously can't do that. And so I was really trying to like just basically not leave the house, even though we weren't put into a lockdown anymore. And um, but it just felt like wherever I went, I would eventually bump into someone who would then become a, a close contact. But I guess that's the pandemic for you, isn't it? It is, it is. Chris, I want to pivot to one of my favourite characters of yours. Well, I think it is my favourite, so I'm going to say that now. Um, and that is Linda. Mm. She is just brilliant. I mean, 
she's almost like the every mum. I like I see her in so many different people, and she's I guess hilarious in the way that you you know. I don't know. It's kind of hard to put into words what you're doing because you're not doing it like in a sense of taking the piss out of Linda herself, but you're kind of almost doing it in this nice, in a sentimental way. Like, you know, it's kind of Absolutely. beautiful. Yeah, like it shows this deep love, I think, for mothers, um, but it is so, so funny. So I wonder if you could share the the character of Linda with us and what she's about and, um, yeah. Essentially, yeah, I've been up fallen head over heels for this kind of classic Kiwi. And she's sort of sometimes Australian mum. Um, and she's kind of got like an older teenage daughter called Cassidy. And I guess what I love about Linda is that I really get to re-examine <laughs> these experiences I had growing up with my mum, but from now her perspective. Because when you're a teenager, everything is so unfair and you just can't believe how your parents are treating you and like all these rules and you just like, just don't get you. And they're so embarrassing. And now to kind of be doing this character, Linda, um, but being the mum and kind of her attitude towards her teenage daughter, (laughs) it's just like endlessly satisfying and fun to me. But yeah, it's mainly about like honoring that kind of woman because I do find them incredible. Like they're very capable people in that sense like like they will organize the 50th they will make sure that everyone turns up they will have the spread out they they remember like to get the card signed by all the family like they're very like the world would fall apart without without lindas and so i do kind of want to honor them but i also feel like lindas all the lindas in the world appreciate like as well how kind of camp and ridiculous they are as well and so um, i just like being in that character and it just comes to me weirdly so naturally but as well I think I have a lot in common with Linda like I too love a really gorgeous boutique hand cream from a small you know boutique shop Mm. Um, and I do love French country and um, you know so we we do have a lot in in common Linda and I in terms of taste and value and probably you know uh, I'd be able to sink a few Chardonnays with Linda (laughs) if I met her in real life for sure. Oh, I think we'd all love to sink a few with Linda, <laughs> really. <laughs> and she is so selfless. Like, I think she really is. Uh, and, yeah. yeah, that video um, where you were talking when it was Christmas and they were exchanging gifts, I think, highlighted that where, you know, mothers are just so loving and giving and then, you know, their teenage kids are just useless when it comes to gifts. Oh, yeah. The amount of voucher books I've given my mum. For Christmas and birthdays, it's just so embarrassing considering what emotionally she's given me over the years. <laughs> I think yeah. Linda actually arrived as another character I was doing, which was um, <laughs> during the lockdown, I created this character of your mum's friend. It's very specific. Mm. It's your mum's friend who picks you up from the airport and drives you around her hometown because you're there for a conference. Now, very specific. Like well, I would argue too specific. But I uploaded it because it just felt so true to me. Um, And so many people were like, I 100% have had this experience, which I think is also just like so amazing um, that that exists. But I was just trying to take, it was like when we're in the bog of the pandemic and I was like, I don't have any more videos about scanning in and cleaning my hands and wearing a mask. And I was like, I just want to make videos about something else. And then that's when Linda was born. Um, But I just... It actually arrived out of the observation of um, 
when women and men drive around in their cars and then they tap on the window with their finger to point out something. They'll be like, oh, oh that's a fantastic yeah. fish and chip shop. Oh, good ice cream's there. And I just, I'm obsessed with that behavior. And then a whole character was born out of um, the idea of tapping your finger <laughs> on the front windscreen when you're driving your car. It's so stupid. What am I that's doing? amazing. Talk about random inspiration. I really love that. Um, <laughs> Before we jump into stand-up comedy, one other question I have about videos. I discovered that um, the Prime Minister of New Zealand responded to one of your videos when you were asking about what uh, the Prime Minister and the country's stance was on sex with strangers and Mm. would a vaccine certificate be required? What about orgies? What about kissing? Was there a policy on one-night stands? You know, is there a kind of scan-in system uh, you ask at this press conference with Jacinda Ardern and Dr Ashley Bloomfield, no doubt, was um, to the right or left of the screen. Clearly, you didn't ask those questions of the Prime Minister, but it was a very funny video, and uh, she did reply with an emoji of, like, a kind of, I don't know, stunned, embarrassing face. Stunned's a better word. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of funny that, you know, in New Zealand this is kind of what happens um, is that you can have these interactions between the comedians uh, and the prime minister and, you know, these things just happen. It's so funny because as a country, we just spend so much time time trying to prove ourselves to the rest of the world. Being like, we're not, we're not this tiny little country and we don't all just know each other. And like, we're actually, you know, a really like established big city. Um, And then something like this happens and just, and it just undoes all your good work. Um, But essentially I think, or I heard, because for a while I was working on breakfast radio and she came in to do an interview and she apparently watches all the videos that I was uploading as they came out, which was, um, had me sort of, uh, double thinking everything that I was uploading for sure. But then also I was like, well, everyone's got to laugh, even the prime minister. So maybe I'll just (laughs) keep it true to myself. But, um, she, it's interesting because Jacinda was our minister for like culture and the arts in New Mm. Zealand. And so she has a very close relationship with a lot of our country's artists and comedians. And, you know, um, back in the improv days, um, which are still happening. I just haven't improved in a while, but um, we used to do our show snort and we'd get monologues from Auckland celebrities and stuff to come in and it would inspire improv scenes. And Jacinda's done it like a handful of times. So so our our tiny theater of a hundred people, I think she just genuinely does love, arts and um live art and culture and stuff like that so i um i'm not sort of surprised that she was engaging or looking at it because that sort of checks out with um her actual you know genuine interest but i think now she's quite busy (laughs) (laughs) probably she's probably probably not going to the shows anymore but she uh, will watch her one minute video when it pops up on her feed um i I kind of can't believe it like you just you you see her account and you're like surely that's not her instagram Mm. account like surely it's some young intern but no it's her yeah well how else does she do her live chats exactly i know (laughs) you know with her family coming in yeah yeah she's um it's been it's actually been we've been so lucky to have like such a great communicator as our you know as like jacinda throughout this pandemic like it actually has or a sort of level of of ease and what has been yeah, such a wacky time mm. um, and so I'm glad that I could give back to her in the um in the best way possible which is with a, a stupid little Instagram video um so <laughs> I think fair is fair we're all done she saved us from the pandemic and I gave her one minute of um, comedy 
That's an amazing exchange. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so impressed. This would not happen in Australia, I can tell you right now. Oh, not even probably with a change of government. I think we do need uh, some more down-to-earth parliamentarians. But, um, Chris, I did note in the bio as well that you went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and you've also been doing stand-up comedy for quite a while. Um, you had a first show win a Best Newcomer Award in 2015 at the New Zealand International Comedy Festival. So this is not a new thing for you, um, clearly being in 2022, but it is great that you have come across to Australia to share your stand-up comedy with us. And I wondered what amount um, translates from the work that you're doing on Instagram and TikTok to the work that is done in stand-up comedy? Because stand-up comedy itself is an art form given there's a live audience there and you're certainly feeding off them. Yeah, it's interesting, eh? I'm not because I'm. I wouldn't really classify myself as an Instagram personality who's pivoted to stand up. I definitely see myself as a stand up who, through the pandemic, started making content online. Mm. Um, but my approach to all my work is like I. It, it is sort of like inspired, I guess, a little bit from like having a a big like formal theatre background training. Like we're at at Toy Fukati, the New Zealand drama school. You like they teach you how to make theater and it was like three years of a prof of like a really intense performing arts degree and so i really i think what it's given me is an understanding or appreciation for comedy and, and its relationship to the form in which comedy is being delivered in so like i think if i i'm not just going to put my stand up on instagram because i know that it's not going to work and that's mm. not how an audience want to digest comedy on their phones um and so i became to like very carefully consider like how i did want to put my comedy online and then i you, in the same breath i know that it's not a smart idea just to put stuff that's worked on a phone uh, on stage um because that also doesn't work um and so i'm really excited to be back doing uh live comedy again and it was the kind of durational thing of like having a good hour because you just can't really sink into anything too long on Instagram because people's attention spans aren't long enough that they want to skip to a, a quick recipe about how to make like tea in a gumboot in a microwave or something stupid, you know? So like you're always competing yeah. you know, on Instagram. Whereas on, in the, in the, um, in the space of like live comedy, it's really about like building that relationship with the audience and trying to create something special in the room together. And so, yeah, I think, I don't know. This show's really fun because it's like a best of of all my stuff from over the years. Um, and so there's a bit of stuff from the Edinburgh show that I'm bringing over and stuff from shows that have happened around the pandemic when we did have a, a festival in New Zealand, but I wasn't able to take it anywhere. Um, and so it's it's like I'm really excited to do it because I'm like, oh, yeah, these are all really fun bits I get to do that I, I care about and I know are really funny but it's a lot about me. Uh, it's quite indulgent in, in a sense, but I like to look at me. I mean, I guess if you only talk about yourself, then like you're not really making assumptions about anyone else. <laughs> so I like that. It's a good like. Well, I, it can't be offensive because I'm just talking about myself here. But within that, I'm, it's kind of an interrogation about my relationship with men and masculinity. And I've always sort of felt like I'm a little bit obsessed with men. I mean, on the surface level of me wanting to um, be with them in a romantic <laughs> sense, but also like um, a lot of my like hardest experiences in my life have also come from being around men. Um, and I question myself a lot when I'm around men. And I think going to like one being living in New Zealand, which is just like rugby is as good as it gets, you know, like it is the dominant culture in the country mm -hmm. and 
it's such a weird world that I don't really necessarily understand, but I'm always around and surrounded by it. And so it's just a show that just kind of looks at my relationship in terms of being just kind of on the periphery of masculinity and what I've observed about masculinity from my um, point of view. Yeah. I mean, it's really it sounds, sounds like a great very show. Lofty. It sounds very lofty <laughs> and, and intellectual. It really isn't. <laughs> like it's mainly just a good time. But um, I do, you know, I do have some <laughs> deep, deeper thoughts sometimes, I guess, about it on like a, when I'm talking about it on radio on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> <laughs> it can be both. It can be both at the same sitting time. A, sitting there with my cup of tea, looking at the window, getting very philosophical when really it is just like, <laughs> it's just the most digestible, fun comedy show, I promise. Yeah. No, I did um, see a short video about, uh, I think it was a joke about your mum's dress-up box, which did also ring true to me about, you know, what a dress-up box should be. You know, it shouldn't be this, like, you know, Superman or that chick from Frozen uh, that everyone seems to dress up as. No, the good dress-up boxes were, like, always um, had those amazing, like, just, like, weird clothing items that your your, your mum's fashion mistakes from the 80s, I think I say in the show, you know, like... And it's so amazing because it's I, it never ceases to amaze me how you can have such a specific experience growing up, and then you talk about it on stage and you realise that everyone else had like an identical experience. <laughs> like everyone had a dress up box. I mean, mine was like a big wicker box. Did you have a dress up? Yes, box? I did. And mine was also a wicker box. What the heck? Why was it I wicker? Know. I guess it was safe, and it was like falling apart. Like, and as a kid, I became yes. obsessed with like unweaving the wicker. Um, but like, and it was under our bunk bed and there was that experience of like constantly standing up and getting your hair caught at the bottom of a bunk bed. Um, and it was like one of the, it's like that pain is only beaten by the pain of scratching your back on the tap in the bath. Like that was Mm. like, it was a feeling of being kind of shot, you know, it was just like so painful. Like there was no recovering from that. The night was over (laughs) and I just, yeah, I find discovering those shared experiences to be one great potential for comedy but two just like oh, I don't know relieving to be like oh my gosh like we're all so like connected and closer than we think we are and like again here we go he's getting philosophical on a Tuesday morning but you know like it's so divided in some ways in this world and then like it is just mm. the most mundane trivial things that do actually all bring us together which I think is always so much fun yeah no it sounds like we had a typical Gen X upbringing and uh, uh- I'm millennial. Do, do not love oh, me. Oh, sorry. Gen- I'm not Gen X. No, I'm Gen Y. Sorry. I'm projecting ahead. I'm not oh. that old. Jesus. I'm millennial's Gen Y. Gen Y. Yep. Oh, yeah, I even, oh, of and course then I Gen X-Y. Z. Yeah. X, Y, Z. I've got a few gripes with Gen Z because I feel like um, they've got it all together now. Like teenagers aren't awkward anymore uh, because of no. their phones. Like They've all like worked it out. They know they're sexual and gender, um, gender identities and they're just so confident and they know how to do their makeup and they look amazing. Whereas when I was their age, I was like, I was a wreck, you know, I was wearing like three quarter cargo shorts and like wearing my mum's Maybelline matte mousse powder all over my face. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of going to like the $2 shop and getting like the purple and blue eyeshadows and the glitter cool. that you stuck on your cheeks and like the, the butterfly hair clips. Because we were all alone. Like, we didn't have a community of people online where we could share advice and figure it out. We were just, like, aimlessly navigating it ourselves. And, like, you know, we'd have acne and we'd, like, put toothpaste on our face because we heard it through the rumour mill at lunchtime that, like, toothpaste all sorted out and you're, like, burning your face off with (laughs) Colgate triple action. It was just hideous. (laughs) 
thank God for phones, but also not. I'm kind exactly. of, I was, I'm kind of glad I didn't have a phone to be honest. Cause now, um, I probably wish I could get rid of mine at the moment, but I do see it is a different type of connectivity and, and how culture and pop culture spreads so quickly. Um, Chris, we'll leave it there. And, uh, I know we've, um, covered so much ground. We, haven't I don't think given the game away for your show which is good so people can head along to your show which is on from March the 31st till the 24th of April it's running between Tuesdays and Sundays so you're having a Monday off uh, and it's on Mantra on Russell in the CBD and uh, I hope people do get along because Mm. I just love everything you do and I'm very excited to learn about your relationship with (laughs) men and masculinity and have a great laugh as well. Oh, I'm excited. I'm, I can't believe I've got my first sort of hotel residency. That's how I'm treating it anyway. <laughs> I'm at the mantra. I just feel like I'm some sort of like 1930s cabaret yeah. star. The mantra, darling. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. And I really hope you have a huge amount of fun and uh, that you can duck and weave the Omicron like you've been doing in New Zealand. Well, I think you don't have it here from what I've, I can see. So, uh, yeah, yeah I will. I'm going to have a wonderful time. It's just disappeared. <laughs> Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. I've just been chatting with comedian and actor Chris Parker. He is from New Zealand, as you can hear, um, and we have a great opportunity to see Chris live in person with his show Gentleman, which is showing as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And as I said, it's running pretty much for the whole season, so you can check it out. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.